You are listening to a podcast from Classic City Church. We're glad you've joined us. Our services are held at 10.30 a.m. on Sunday mornings at 595 Prince Avenue in the Piedmont Sanctuary. For more information, please visit www.classiccity.org. This is a sermon by Alan Goddard. Thank you again for coming. Uh, I want to introduce to you today our guest speaker. We have a real treat. Um, Alan Goddard, who is the director of crew here at the University of Georgia, formerly uh, the ministry formerly known as Campus Crusade, um, is one of our elders. He um, is a great, great man of God. Uh, Alan has spent 15 years of his life in the mission field, and he's been back for almost 10 years. Is that right? Here in Athens, uh, directing uh, the, the local ministry here. Uh, he's a graduate of Georgia Tech. Otherwise, a fine, fine man. <laughs> Let's give a great big hand to Alan Goddard as he comes up. Thanks, man. I don't think it's very polite of Lee to submarine me like that <laughs> and uh, mention Georgia Tech in this setting, but that's okay. Everything else was very kindly done and said. Good morning. Well, welcome. We, if you haven't been here the past couple months, Lee has been leading us through a sermon series called Paradoxes of the Faith. And I really appreciate this series. We have been talking about aspects of the Christian faith or aspects in God's nature which are paradoxical. In other words, they seem like contradictions, but they really aren't. And I really appreciate this series because it helps us think well about mature aspects and nuances of the Christian faith that we not, wouldn't normally think about. And we need that. Because the more clearly we can see God and lay our eyes on Him, the more we are going to be transformed to be like Him. Isn't that what it says in Corinthians? That beholding Him, we become changed from one degree of glory into another, into this glory. And this idea of seeing God clearly is what we need to be about as believers. And so this, this series, I think, really helps us do that. And so I'm going to continue this series for us today. And we are going to talk about the approachable, unapproachable God. We read in the inspiration, in Psalm 100 a little earlier today, about this contrast of a God who calls himself our maker, who is our creator, who is the one who is the source of us and is completely transcendent also being approached and being, we're invited to come into his gates and into his courts. And there's this idea of God's transcendence and also his nearness. And that's what we're going to meditate on today. And in order to do that, I have chosen two stories from Scripture that we're going to read and they're going to lead us in that. So here's our two stories. The first one is in 2 Samuel 6, 1 through 8. It also appears a second time in 1 Chronicles 13. And then I'll read the second story as our two scripture passages for today. So here's the one from 2 Samuel, if you want to turn to 2 Samuel 6 and follow along, or you can look at the screen above my head. It'll be there too. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose, and he went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart, and they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. 
And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were making merry before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nikon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him. Now, wait a minute, that can't be right. What does it say on the screen? And God's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down, and he died. There before the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had burst forth against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. Story number two. This is in Luke 15, verses 11 through 24. And Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise. And I will go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose, and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and let us celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Pray with me, please. Lord, may our meditations on these passages of Scripture be pleasing to you today. May you lead us through them. And Father, today, as we see you reflected in these stories and learn what you wish us to know, I pray, Father, you would give us a greater apprehension and understanding of our salvation and that that would fill us with a greater joy. Amen. Okay. Two stories. Now, they may not seem so on the surface, but these stories are highly contradictory. And you may not realize it, but both of these stories are nothing less than shocking. Now, we don't tend to think of these two stories as being shocking. Number one, because the first story, we're so unfamiliar with it that we're not shocked by it out of ignorance. 
And secondly, the second story, we're so overly familiar with it, we've become numb to it. But both these stories are shocking and contradictory, and to really understand what we're going to talk about today, we need to understand what's going on in both of these stories. So how do we make sense of these two things? Now, contrary to popular uneducated myth, it's not just because the Old Testament is the section of the Bible that deals with violence and bloodshed, and the New Testament is the one that deals with grace and mercy and nice things. And there's so much grace and mercy of God depicted and taught to us in the Old Testament in places like Ezekiel 16 and others that just talk about God's overwhelming mercy on those that he calls his people and on the mankind that he has created. And of course in the New Testament there are plenty of places that talk about God's wrath and judgment. We all know John 3.16, but why doesn't anybody ever hold up a sign at a football game with John 3.36 that says just 20 verses later, if anyone does not believe in him, he will not see life because God's wrath remains on him. But we tend to have this dichotomy of thinking, well, the Old Testament is the section of wrath and the New Testament is the section of mercy. No, no, it's more complicated and more nuanced than that. And what's going on in these stories reflects something that is true all the time. It's a both and, this paradox of God and this paradox of scripture that we're talking about. There's more to it. So let's start unpacking the first story. Let me give you a little background of what this confusing story about Uzzah and the ark is. Um, the ark mentioned in this story, if you, haven't, if, you, if you don't really come from a Christian background, maybe you're visiting with us today, or maybe you've never heard anything like this, that's totally great. Um, the ark in this story is not Noah's ark. Uh, the ark in this story is actually a box. If you're my age or older, you know what this is because you saw a movie a long time ago called uh, Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? Remember that? Some people are nodding, right? You've seen that. When I was a kid, that was a big deal. Help launched Harrison's Ford, Harrison Ford's career. The ark is a box, and it is described in the Old Testament um, as, a, as a, an item Moses was to have built when the children of Israel left Egypt. And in this ark were several objects which depicted God's relationship with the children of Israel at that time and actually represented man's sinfulness. And they were placed in the ark as a memorial for various reasons. And I won't go into a whole lot of detail about what it was, but it was about six feet long and four feet wide and four feet deep covered in gold, and on top of this box were two angels with outstretched wings, and they were looking down into the ark. And this box was carried along with the Israelites as they went through the desert and into the promised land, and it was placed in the tabernacle, and it was placed in the temple later. And this ark was a place where the Israelites, or where Moses, would go in and meet with God, and God in his wisdom, for various reasons at that time, even though he fills the whole earth and is all around us, he at that time, gave a specific location and place that he would meet with Israel, I guess, so that they would see and understand he was with them. And it was right above this ark. And so we need to understand why this box was such a big deal and why it is that Uzzah gets struck down, okay? Now, here's the thing. The ark in the Old Testament, if you read all about the prescriptions for it, the ark was to be handled by the priests, the sons of Levi. But there was a special group of the sons of Levi called the Kohathites. And their specific job was to transport the ark. And they had specific instructions. For instance, here's a verse that talks about that that's right behind me. You can see a little picture of the ark there. 
In Numbers 4.15, it says, this is the ark of the Lord who is enthroned between the cherubim. You can see the light enthroned between the cherubim and that artist's depiction there. The cherubim were the angels, right? This is where God would meet with Moses. And this said, after Aaron and his sons have finished covering the holy furnishings and all the holy articles, and when the camp is ready to move, the Kohathites are to come to do the carrying. But they must not touch the holy things or they will die. And so you see this command of God clearly given in the Old Testament. And here's the thing. Uzzah was a Kohathite. His family was Kohathites. He would have known this. Now when the ark was carried, it had rings on each side of it. And long poles were put in each of these rings. And then they were put on people's shoulders. And they would walk the ark on these poles so that no one would be near the ark of God. And that is how they would transport it, right? But in this story that we read about Uzzah, they come along and what do they do? They put the ark on a cart. Now the reason the ark was not in Jerusalem is because the Israelites had kind of used it superstitiously and taken it to a battle. And then they lost the battle with the Philistines and the ark was captured and then the Philistines started experiencing all kinds of horrible things and they said, get rid of this ark and get it out of here and they got sent it back to Israel. And the Israelites were collecting it again in joy and taking it back to Jerusalem. And so they put it on a cart, and as the thing tips over and it looks like the ark is going to fall, Uzzah reaches out and puts his hand on it. Well, what's going to happen? But they must not touch the holy things or they will die. Now, we need to understand why this is so important. Does God seem capricious in this? We need to understand why the ark was so key. I have a little picture here that's kind of a cutaway of the temple and the ark is in this very back part of the temple called the Holy of Holies behind a very large 40-foot tall curtain. And if you're familiar with the temple in the Old Testament or the tabernacle before it, it was a way God revealed his unapproachability and his holiness. Because in the temple structure, there was this large courtyard called the Courtyard of the Gentiles, and anyone could go there seeking the Lord. But then within that, there was a courtyard just for Jews, and then within that, more a courtyard for head of households, and then that, a courtyard that only the priests could go to, and so on and so on, until finally there was one area of the temple called the Holy of Holies, and that is where the ark sat. And into that room, behind that curtain, only the high priest of Israel could go, and he could only go once a year, and that once a year was where he offered the sacrifice of atonement at the Ark of the Covenant. This is God's way of saying, this is the holiest of holy. This is me. My holiness is here. And we have to understand the severity and greatness of God's holiness and how it cannot be despoiled. God goes to great lengths in all of Scripture to try to show us how transcendent and how perfect and how holy and how other he is from us as sinful, despoiled human beings who have rebelled against him. Uh, I don't really know of any greater passage that talks about it than this one in Isaiah 6 where God uh, describes it this way. I think it'll be on the screen right there. I think. Do we have the Isaiah 6 passage? <clears throat> Maybe we don't. I guess not. We have a nice slide that talks about the series. In Isaiah 6, Isaiah is in the temple and he's serving as one of the priests and God appears to him in Isaiah chapter 6. And he has a vision of God and the angels are flying around. And in this vision, 
The angels are calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Heaven and earth are full of his glory. And then the angels on that side will be, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Heaven and earth are full of his glory. Now, why, is that, why are they saying this? Here's what we need to understand. In Hebrew, repetition is a form of emphasis when it comes to language. Now, R.C. Sproul in his book, Holiness of God, talks about it this way. In the book of Numbers, there's this story of the Israelites fighting a battle. And uh, one of the versions says, and on that day, a certain number of soldiers died because they fell into the tar pits. But if you read another version, it says they fell into the deep pits. And if you read another version, it says they fell into the dark pits. And you're kind of like, well, okay, what kind of pits were they? Well, we don't really know. Because in Hebrew, what it literally says is they fell into the pit pits. As if to say, well, if you fall into a pit, that's bad. But if you fall into a pit pit, man, you in trouble. Right? There is only one triple repetition in the entire Hebrew scriptures. It is that God is holy, holy, holy. The perfection and holiness and transcendence of God must be understood and grasped. And in our finite minds, we struggle to do it. God's holiness is extreme, and we have to understand what that means. We cannot approach him. His thoughts are not our thoughts, and his ways are not our ways. He is utterly unapproachable by sinful human beings such as you and I. So what was Uzzah's era? Do you see it? Uzzah played fast and loose with God's holiness. Uzzah didn't respect it and played fast and loose with the things of God. Or how about if I say it this way? Uzzah treated God and his commands like they were no big deal. Story number two. Now, story number two is very familiar to us. And as such, we tend not to think about it very much. But this story is actually just as shocking as the first one. And I won't read again the story of the prodigal son because I think most of us know it. But here's the shocking part is this sentence in Luke 15. It says, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Now, the reason this story is shocking is because this story is actually a story from a shame and honor culture. And we don't really get that. So let me talk about that just for a second. Um, some anthropologists and other people, uh, among them a man named uh, Roland Mueller, has, has written a book called Honor and Shame, in which he explains that there are basically three main influences on all of the world's cultures. One we would call guilt innocence, another we would call honor shame, and another we would call fear power. And the idea is that we live in a guilt-innocence culture. We think of things in terms of very individualistic. What I have done, I receive my consequences for. If I do good, I, I receive good. If I do bad, I receive bad. Um, we tend to think of things as very black and white. We judge this, we judge that, and it's a very guilt-innocence. We are rule-of-law culture, okay? Most Western cultures, North America, Europe, uh, Australia, New Zealand, these places that are influenced by Western thinking are very guilt-innocence kind of cultures. 
Then there are fear power cultures in which there's a very hierarchical power structure. The idea of appeasing powers is very strong. South America, Sub-Saharan Africa, Southeast Asia are very strong this way. And then there's honor-shame cultures. Now, honor-shame cultures tend to reside in the Middle East, tend to reside in Asia, South Asia. And in an honor-shame culture, we have to understand the way this is developed is an honor-shame culture is all about the group. And if you are in the group, you are honored. But if you are shamed, that means you are excluded from the group. Now, we don't tend to think like that, so it doesn't really help us much. Even though our culture is actually kind of shifting to honor shame with all our social media shaming that's starting to go on and different things like that. You have to remember, in an honor shame culture, most of those started in arid desert climates in which survival depended on being part of the group. If you are excommunicated from the group, you might not live. And so being a part, being accepted in the community was extremely important. It could mean life or death. And in an honor-shame culture, that honor, that acceptance, that inclusion is what drives people's relationships with each other and decision-making. Now, not every culture in the world is just one or the other. These are like primary colors that can mix together to a certain extent. But every culture has one of these three pretty much as its dominant flavor. Now, you have to remember, Jesus is in the Middle East. Jesus is teaching this in Israel. This is an honor and shame culture. And so the idea that the son has left the family, he's left the group, and has brought shame to that group is perfectly understandable to them in a way that I personally, from a guilt-innocence culture, have a hard time grasping. But then when he comes back to the father, now we see that shame brought to bear, right? I don't think I ever really understood this story until I lived overseas in Asia. I, uh, Lee mentioned I spent a number of years in the mission field overseas and um, lived in the middle of an honor-shame culture. And, and this story came home to me one day. In our ministry, there was a college graduate who decided to uh, actually join our full-time staff. Um, she was Asian. She was a national in the midst of this honor-shame culture, and of course, in the midst of this uh, very humanistic, atheistic land, this was, of course, not appreciated, and her family didn't understand it, because she was the only believer in her family. So this was very radical of her to do, and her family considered it to bring shame, and she told this story that once during the holiday season, she went home to see her family after they had become aware of this decision. And she got home, and her mother, of course, was furious at her, and her mother scolded her, and so how could you do this? How could you, how could you join these religious people and all this and just persecuting her? But then her mother said, you think I'm mad at you. You need to go talk to your father. And here's the, the way the story goes. She's at home and she, mom says, your father's in the bedroom waiting for you. And so this, this young lady went in the bedroom. Her father was sitting facing the wall. You can picture this. This is literally a true story. He's facing the wall in a chair with his back to her and to the door, with his arms folded, looking the entirely opposite direction. And she walked in and he would not speak to her. And she stammered out something about, hello, I'm back. And then in the awkwardness, tried to stammer out something about what they were all upset over and such like this. It was very awkward. It was very embarrassing. And the father refused to acknowledge her and just kept staring at the wall. And after... An eternity of this, which probably lasted a few minutes, she, she turned and left with her father silently staring at the wall. And then later, 
I guess they came out. I'm not sure how long it took for them to be reconciled. But that was the story she described when she came back. Now think about the prodigal son story. In an honor and shame culture, as the son comes back after wasting the inheritance and bringing shame on his family through his terrible living, do you get it? The father not only does not receive him that way, but the father sees him, it says, from a distance. He's like, who's that coming over the hill? Is it my son? Is it my son? And he gets up and he runs to him. Now, in an honor-shame culture in the Middle East at this time, this would have been shocking to Jesus' audience. They would never have pictured this. It would have been absolutely embarrassing for the head of the estate, the head of the family, to run. I mean, it would have been embarrassing for him to get up and receive the son, but to run to his son, that would be, that would be so degrading. And this is how Jesus describes a picture of God's response to us. It's shocking. And so you can kind of see how these two stories present this. We are faced with a paradox. How is a holy, holy, holy God who is completely unapproachable at the same time a God who is so accessible and so eager to be united with us as his people that he would run to us even when we're sinful. That's the paradox we have to understand, and that's what Scripture presents. And you see this all over the Word. It's a both and. For example, what about prayer? Here's an example. There's a passage in Ecclesiastes 5. We might have that one up there. It says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth. So let your words be few. And then at the same time, you can flip over to Philippians 4, 6, which says this, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Now, how can that be? How can it be that we're warned to remember that God is in heaven and we're on earth and we should let our words be few? But at the same time, God says, tell me everything. Whatever's on your heart, just tell me. Come to me. Talk to me. But both these things are true at the same time. How can that be? Well, it makes sense but the only way that this paradox makes sense is through something called the cross. How can a sinful people approach a holy God? There is just one way that that can happen. In Ephesians 3.12, Paul says about Christ, in him and through faith in him we may approach God with freedom and confidence. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. And what that is saying is, even though we are desperately sinful and evil, even though in the face of a holy, holy, holy God, we do not stand a chance of approaching him, even though we are the greatest filth compared to his holiness, Jesus Christ, out of his mercy, has come. And he has paid the price for that crime against God that our sin is. And he has taken that away so that now we're clothed in him. And every time God looks at us, he looks at Jesus, a holy, holy, holy son of God. And he's delighted in us because our sin is washed away. The cross took that sin away. And now 
you and I as sinful people can approach a God who is holy, holy, holy because the holiness of Christ has been given us. That is the gospel of Christ as it is described in terms of God's holiness. And so we see that it's in him and through faith in him that we come to understand that we are children of the king. Because in one sense, we need to understand we are so loved and so accepted by God, that God who would run to us, that that king, he's our dad. We're so accepted to him. You know what? We can go in the throne room any old time. You know why? Because king is dad. He's dad. It's like, can you imagine going into the throne room of a king? I mean, hey, dad, can I borrow the chariot tonight? You know, something like that. And, and, and he's like, hold on one second. Uh, yeah, here's the, um, here's the keys. Um, just be back by 10, right? And yet on the other hand, we also have to keep, keep with the thought that our dad is a king. We don't just go into a throne room willy-nilly to cut up. That would be inappropriate. There's, a, there's an understanding there that both of those amazing facts are true. Our God is both approachable and unapproachable at the same time. And that curtain in the temple that separated the ark and the Holy of Holies from the rest of the people, that curtain is now torn that we read in the New Testament that when Jesus was crucified, it was ripped into. And now even though that's a holy place, we have access to it all through Christ. So let me close this way. I know that I'm speaking to a couple of different groups of people here. There may be some of you here who are not believers in Christ, who you might not describe yourself as a Christian, or maybe you've never heard anything like this before. And you're just here kind of um, checking it out, which is great. Here's the message I think that, that these stories tell you. And it's a very serious message, and that is that God is a holy, holy, holy God. And you cannot approach him, just like all of us before Christ could not approach him. And so the hope of access that you have in him is only to be found one way. The only way to escape God's wrath, which is right, is through Christ. There is no other way for you to have a relationship with God and to realize who you are made to be and for your spirit to be alive again and for life to work and for everything to make sense, and for you to be who you are meant to be. It is only through Christ that we can approach a holy, holy, holy God. And so my message to you would be, you must embrace him. You are in great peril. You stand before a holy God, and you have no way to answer him except through what Christ has done on the cross. And if you have been resistant of that, I encourage you, I urge you, think deeply about this and lay yourself down and, and embrace what Christ has done for you on the cross because that is the message of these stories to you just as it was to those of us who are now in Christ before we knew him. Now to those of us who are already believers in Christ, there's probably a couple of different applications. I guess the main application is this, it's what you think it would be. Really, all of us as Christians err one direction or the other. We either err on the side of being too casual with God or too afraid of God. And it's really hard to get this paradoxical balance right. So which one are you? Are you the one who's too casual with God? Are you dishonoring God by taking his holiness 
too lightly? Do you, like Uzzah, play fast and loose with the things of God? Are your devotional times careless? Do you act like God is merely your buddy all the time, not a holy king to be respected? You know, I, I work with college students a lot, and one of the things that I think is, is uh, kind of cool but also gets a little tiresome is uh, I, I hear a lot of students start their prayers with, Hey, Dad. Hey, God. Hey, it's me. Can we really pray to God like that? Can we? Well, yes, we can. Go ahead, nod, yes. We, of course we can. Because that dearness and that access and that intimacy with God has been bought for us in Christ. Yes, he's our dad. He's our Abba Father, it says in Romans 8, right? Yes, we can pray that way. But if that's the only way you ever pray and ever address God, I would say something is missing. There are times we need to go before the Lord and say, holy God, consuming fire, and address him differently if we really have an understanding of what our salvation is. You know, or are you the, are you the person taking God too casually because you treat God's commands as if they're optional? Or maybe, do you only follow his commands if they make sense to you or if they're reasonable? I mean, I'm sure that's what Uzzah and Ahio were doing. They're like, Jerusalem's miles away. I'm not going to put poles on this thing. Our shoulders would be killing us by the time we got there. Let's just put it on a card. That makes so much more sense without thinking about what they were doing and who God was. Is that you? It's a good question to ask. Are you the type that plays fast and loose with the holiness of God? Or maybe you're the other person. We're probably all one of these at different times, but maybe you're that person who all you see is the holiness of God. And even though Christ's blood has bought you, and even though your Father loves you dearly, and even though there is nothing keeping your access from him anymore, you're, you're standing outside the throne room and you're still afraid to go in because you can't believe God would love you that much. And you're still judging yourself for all those things that Christ has already forgiven. Are you that person? Are you that Christian who still feels really distant from God because you can't believe God really does delight in you and really does love you that much? That when Psalm 149 says, the Lord delights in his people, he crowns the humble with salvation. You can't believe that's really true, that God would delight in you. Is that you? Are you standing outside the throne room afraid to go in, even though the king has already run outside to go get you? See, as Christians, I feel like we're just always erring on one side or the other. But here's the paradox of the faith. The king is your father. And we have to remember both those things. It is true. Your father is a king. And when we approach him, we need to remember how holy, how powerful, how majestic he is and not take that lightly. But at the same time, that king is your father. And you have complete access to him. And you can go in that throne room anytime you want because that access has been given you through that relationship. Your father is a king but the king is your father. Let's pray. Holy, holy, holy father, here we are. We are your children. Lord, we stand before you in awe of who you are, but also speechless because of the love and mercy that has been given us.
Lord, how can we comprehend this? Father, we just come to you in incredible joy to think that you would run to us, that we are so undeserving, yet you treat us with such love. It's just amazing. Oh, Father, my prayer would be that, that for all of us here today, you would help us to grasp the importance of this paradox of faith and how we are so loved and delighted in by you. And yet you are so holy and so majestic that you are worthy of worship and both these things are true. Father, I pray for those who err on one side or the other, which is, is me all the time, that you would give us that understanding and that grasp, that you would reveal yourself to us so that we have a proper awe and a proper joy all at the same time. And Father, these worship songs that we are going to sing, Father, hear them from our heart, songs of joy and songs of worship for a holy king and a loving father. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Classic City Church. We hope that together we can honor the greatness of Jesus by growing spiritually, living authentically, and participating in his purposes. For more information or more sermons from Classic City Church, please visit www.classiccity.org.